Hello, you're listening to Pod Academy. My name is Radu Spora. I'm a research fellow at the University of Surrey, where I study new, cost-effective and energy-efficient electronics. I have with me a book called The Burning Answer. It is about the ways in which we are starting to harness solar power and other renewable energy sources to achieve truly sustainable electricity. It argues that photovoltaics, or PV, should be at the center of our energy generation. On this drab September day, I'm about to meet its author, Professor Keith Barnum, whose long career in physics includes stints at the University of California, Berkeley and CERN. Professor Keith Barnum, you wrote a book about solar energy, and on a day like this, it's a pretty hard argument to, to get across. This sort of weather, cloudy but light, and appreciate the sun is out there somewhere, I would at home be able to run my washing machine off the power that you get off the roof at this time. Solar is not just about PV. It's solar energy that produces the wind as well and produces the uh, biogas that can provide the backup to both wind and PV. Even at night time, uh, I, all my electricity is at home is, uh, is solar. Uh, my lights haven't gone off uh, in, the, in, the last, uh, in the last two years that I've been having uh, my supply from them. PV p- provides power when we need it most. It peaks, as we all know, about midday when the sun is highest in the sky... And that's actually when the demand for electricity is at, is at its most, when we're cooking lunch. And the uh, Germany, they have shown uh, that, that it uh, not only peaks at a, a, around the right time, but the PV power follows the shape of demand. At the moment in Germany, around noon, the time of peak demand, when electricity is actually the most expensive, the PV that they get has reduced the price of of wholesale price of, of electricity on the grid considerably because it comes at the time of peak, peak demand. So if you look at it in terms of energy, it's only, uh, they only get about 3% of their energy, but the power comes at the right time, 30 to 50% sometimes of, of the actual power around the middle of the day is, is supplied by PV in Germany, and that's why the price of wholesale price of electricity has fallen in Germany. Here in the UK, we're roughly about the same latitude. There's a bit less sunshine, maybe. The Germans have it a bit better. The amount of sunshine is not the whole story. When we're talking about renewables, we're doing quite well. In, in terms of the energy, now the, the average figure, the UK on average is about 5% less than Germany. We too have maximum demand around the middle of the day. And as you say, it's important also to look at our wind and, and biogas potentiality. Um, in terms of wind, we're far better off than the Germans. Uh, we've got more coastline. Uh, we've got the offshore wind, which is doing extremely well at the moment. Our wind resource is much higher in the winter than in the summer, which fits very well with the demand. We demand more electricity in the winter than the summer. Our wind resource very well matches our uh, electricity demand. It's very noble to think that we could derive most of our energy and most of our electrical power from renewable, clean resources. Sometimes we need to store this energy, at least temporarily. You told us that at night you still get your energy from green sources. How is that achieved? Some people 
have real concerns about the fact that we can't really store particularly well energy on the grid? That's, a great, that's an important question. The Germans did an experiment called the Kombikraftwerk, which stands for Combined Power Plant. And what they did, they took the actual demand from the German grid as it ran throughout a whole year, scaled it down because at the time they didn't have that much PV when, when, they did, when they started this experiment anyway. They have an awful lot now. 2006, they uh, took the actual output from PV generators, the actual output from wind generation, and matched the dem- actual demand in real time, or the scaled-down demand, by adjusting the amount of electricity that they got from the biogas generators and what they found was remarkable wind and pv are so correlated as we said they're so complementary that they only needed about 17 percent of the power to be provided by biogas to back up the the wind and pv the wind and pv produce 78 percent of the power, and those of you listening who are good at mathematics will realize there's a little bit left, and that was a five percent, which was, uh, as you mentioned, a storage amount of storage. But that's all they needed, they needed five percent of storage throughout a, a typical year, uh, and they've run that experiment ever since. And, and it supplies meeting demand with a very small amount of, of storage. That's very encouraging, and again, I think the important point here is that you have this reliance on a technology which can fill in the gaps of wind and photovoltaics the, the fact that biogas can be switched on and off quite quickly biogas is the ideal backup because you can turn it on in, in minutes turn it up and down in minutes but what about nuclear people keep talking about nuclear i thought nuclear was supposed to be clean nuclear will be a completely crazy backup to a to a high amount of wind and pv for a number of reasons the first is that if you can manage to get your nuclear reactor working then you leave it working producing the same power uh, 24 7 winter summer uh, you you can't you can't actually change it very soon we're going to get to to the situation that a wholesale electricity price is going to start coming down and i'm absolutely sure the wind wind power is producing this already in 10 years time when we get this first nuclear reactor that uh, edf are so keen to build in at hinkley point the the wholesale price of electricity in the uk will have fallen tremendously and uh, and yet we are bear in mind that we we you and i you the taxpayer and me as taxpayer we are committed by the government policy to support the difference between the wholesale price and the uh, nuclear price which is expected to be double the current price let alone what the wholesale price will be in in 10 years time with all that all that renewable it is, again, completely crazy. In the book, you, you talk about life cycle analysis and the fact that supposedly clean technologies could have wide, wildly varying carbon footprints. I don't think we actually know what the carbon footprint of nuclear power actually is. There are five stages in the production of nuclear electricity that we have to think about, in each of which carbon will be emitted that is the construction of a nuclear power station, the operation of it, the preparation of the fuel, the disposal of any waste, and the 
decommissioning of the reactor, which of course also produces more waste that has to be disposed of. So there are these five elements. Now bear in mind that the Committee for Climate Change has pointed out we need to cut carbon emissions of new electricity generation uh, such that by 2030 the generators emit no more than 50 grams of carbon dioxide uh, per kilowatt hour. The carbon footprint of nuclear power we just do not know at the moment. There is indeed a lot of uncertainty about these uh, figures. Something similar can be said about the fabrication of, of solar cells. In IEEE's magazine, Spectrum, in September 2014, there's an article uh, which effectively says that the environmental impact or the ecological impact of um, certain commercial solar cells can be as much as double depending on how they use water, where the energy comes from and so on. And I think you made the point in the book that you should just buy silicon from Norway or wherever <laughs> they have they have something of, of, a, of a almost 100% renewable, uh, which is a fair point. But can we do this? I mean, is there a way of actually policing these things and, and making sure that solar generators come from renewable sources in, in their fabrication? Uh, that's one thing we, we, we obviously need to work towards. I would maintain that there's still all the analyses I've seen put them below the 50 grams of CO2 per, per kilowatt hour. But it doesn't mean to say that there isn't a certain amount of environmental devastation that's going on. It is, it, it is exceedingly sad uh, the way it's gone uh, in, in terms of the reduction in price of PV, which it was, it was always the intention of the, of the feeding tariff in Germany, that there will be demand, increase the demand, there would be uh, mass production and, uh, and the price would come down. Some of the problems you allude to, I'm afraid, are because the Western industry and Western governments did not do enough to go for biggest enough mass production uh, with our very strict environmental regulations. I'm, I'm afraid, as, as we all know historically, the Chinese got in on the act. And I have to say, I, I fear that they, they haven't got as good environmental standards as us. And that, that's sad. Uh, that may be one reason why they're producing more cheaply, I'm afraid. But uh, the, these, these things I can improve. And, and the semiconductor industry has shown uh, in general uh, uh, an appreciation of the need to, uh, to, to, to improve its image in, in this respect. After all, in the early days, crystalline silicon solar cell didn't generate as much electricity as it took to, took to make it. It's right for IEEE spectrum to, 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 to say, clean up your act, we can always watch better, but you know, they should be also directing their, uh, their ire at the nuclear industry where fundamentally it's going to be a lot more, it's a lot more difficult to, get, to clean up their act. Over your career in the field, there's been tremendous progress, but it's not only been incremental, there have been some radical step changes as well in the technology. When the industry started, the silicon it used was the cast-offs from the, from the chip industry. Thanks to the German and Japanese stimulation policies at the turn of the century, the demand took off exponentially. And as, as a good market, industry responded, going for trying to in, improve on mass production, and soon became comparable in size in terms of its demand on, on silicon as the, as the chip industry from which it was taking the, uh, the, the rejects. They had to look elsewhere and at different, different technologies, 
And that's when they looked at the uh, thin film cell, multicrystalline or amorphous silicon, all the new materials, cadmium, cadmium telluride, copper indium diselenide. In all cases, they look, needed a lot less material. It must be said that the Chinese did do the thing properly. They decided on their own supply lines for the silicon. They realized the need for uh, silicon supply lines, and they're doing their own. And I think, I fear that's where some of the environmental problems have come. That's the second generation, cheaper by a factor of two, though the Chinese managed to bring the first generation down so far that they, they really are now comparable in, t- in, terms of, in terms of price. But I think the second generation can go more cheaply. There are a lot of very exciting new technologies uh, that, that will, should be cheaper, flexible substrates, lots of in- interesting stuff going on there. And then the third generation, there are a lot of interesting things there, like plastic cells and um, uh, and the dye-sensitive cells that I hadn't got time to go into in the book because, um, in, in fact, my, my criteria really was power generation plus the fact that those two technologies potentially even cheaper but not as efficient. If you're after power... That's a bit of a problem. Now, in the third generation, the um, the high-efficiency triple junction cells in which uh, I've been working on, based on uh, the material gallium arsenide, which was um, the material responsible for the chip in your mobile phone, that, that sort of technology is crystalline. Its lifetime in terms of degradation in the elements has been well-proven. It is now the technology of choice in satellites, uh, and they prove themselves there. Getting them down on Earth is a question of bringing the price down. There, the exciting thing about um, the the technology is that um, the way you bring the price down of what are fairly expensive chips, certainly more ex- expensive than silicon, is to have a, a lens or mirror, uh, an optical concentrator, something that will take sunlight over a larger area and concentrate it down onto a small cell. You've brought with you um, a third-generation solar cell, yeah. and it's absolutely tiny. It's not something that you think of when you think of, of photovoltaics. The cells people are developing now have sizes down to uh, a millimetre or so, which is about the size of the um, LED inside uh, an LED torch or or spotlight. People are looking at how to make a plastic lens that will concentrate the light down and then mounting a small cell behind it so that it looks very much like an LED spotlight unit. That technology would then use the same approach as the as the LED, and, and the price will come down. The Chinese are going to go big in this for, for their lighting. They actually like to cover their public buildings with lights, and they've realized that this is using an awful lot of electricity, so they're, they're thinking of replacing that by the much more efficient LED. And I'm sure it's occurred to them that... Uh, well, why don't you generate the electricity itself with the same sort of technology? And the fact that these cells are so small means that they don't have to cover the the whole surface through which you get your light, so you could have particularly interesting applications with them. The most important point about it is that you can differentiate between the uh, direct and diffuse sunlight. You can pick up the direct sunlight in the lens and focus that onto, onto the cell, and the diffuse sunlight you could pick up with one of these extremely cheap, 
second generation flexible type approaches and uh, and combine the two uh, well, that's one thing we've looked at at imperial college and uh, the idea of a smart smart window in which you have a transparent blind which looks like a blind except that you can see through it it what it does is focus it onto a, a light pipe which guides the light to the edge of the window the window frame in which you've got these very small cells and the great thing about this system is it generates electricity it does its job still it cuts out the direct sunlight so it reduces the air conditioning load and because the the they're transparent and because they're moving so that they leave gaps the diffuse light um, which we've got so much of in, in in the uk is allowed into the room and so you don't have to do this thing that everybody does with their blinds, with old-fashioned blinds. When they're down, you turn on the lights. So it's a win-win situation all the way around, particularly in the, in the British climate. Just to finally tie that up with what I said earlier about all renewable electricity supply, this technology is not necessary. I think we can have an all-renewable electricity supply uh, with current technology. Uh, we don't need this, but this is an, an additional benefit that I think we will find from uh, PV in the years to come. You've written the book after more than 30 years in the field, but this wasn't really your first love. My first love was particle physics. It's a it's wonderful subject. I'm very privileged to have, to have been part of it. And it's a great experience working in international teams at CERN. But the point that gnawed away at the back of me, particularly when I was uh, one of the, the 100, 200 people at CERN working on uh, the verification of the unification of the electroweak interaction, electricity, magnetism, and the weak nuclear force. Uh, Wonderfully exciting time, uh, but it leaves you with two questions. Absolutely fascinating physics, terribly fundamental, but what was its practical application? Sadly, as far as I'm aware, hasn't had any yet. And secondly... If I'd fallen under a bus, uh, uh, there would have been an awful lot of other physicists around to, uh, to take my place. Whereas when I started to look at PV in, in, in the UK, photovoltaics, and I realised that this was the future, and I, I described this in the book, reading a, about a projection backwards from, uh, from this century, actually, we're in it now, to uh, what the state of play we might be if we, we hadn't developed photovoltaics and renewable technologies. I I, I suddenly realized there was just a handful of people in the UK doing photovoltaic research. But for such an important subject with such practical importance, it was um, clearly more chance of me making an impact for the two reasons. One, that it had more practical application. Two, there wasn't anybody, many people doing, actually doing any research in that area. What I, what, what, one of the most exciting things then about the new area was to find that the quantum ideas that, that were so exciting about particle physics actually have some relevance, very important relevance, in, in the solar cell world. So um, that, that was a a bonus I wasn't aware of when I went into the subject, and I hope I've communicated some of that in the, in the book. You worked at CERN, you worked at Berkeley, you brushed shoulders with Richard Feynman and Abdus Salam, um, Nobel Prize winners. Is really the the environment crucial to to conducting good work in science? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Yes, 
Uh, you're absolutely right. I think it's terribly important when we assess why are we so behind in, in developing new uh, renewable uh, technologies. What we're missing is uh, the, the CERN, and the national, the international labs, which, as you say, are, are incredible environments. This sort of research, the governments and the top scientists go around saying, well, of course, it's industry you should do this applied stuff. One of the problems I've seen, uh, tragedies, is that industry doesn't, pay for fundamental research as soon as you get as soon as you start getting somewhere interesting <laughs> it gets chopped uh, the, the, it's always the financial bottom line that's the, the matter so you've made a very very good point there we need national laboratories uh, we, we have there's one in germany uh, fraunhofer isc for pv excellent uh, laboratory and there's one one in the states but it's the national renewable energy laboratory it deals with all renewables altogether but that's about it on the world scale Places are beginning to take a bit of interest, but there's neither of those or anything like CERN or uh, or the big particle physics labs in the states. It's still a small uh, activity. This is uh, one one of the things I'm trying to get over in the book that there's a great need for um, for the scientists and the um, uh, scientific establishments, in particular governments, to realise that uh, they're prepared to put so much more money into fusion, something that 50 years' time may or may not work, and the way global warming is going, will we be here in 50 years? We've got to have defeated global warming before within 50 years, basically, and the renewables are the way to do it, the quickest way to do it, and it, they're sustainable. <laughs> if we do succeed in, say, in ensuring in 50 years' time there's a society that could possibly develop, uh, uh, keep developing a fusion reactor... Because they're sustainable, the solution and the reason that we get there, there will be absolutely no need at that time for fusion. So that's the mindset we're up against. And uh, if we had labs that doing uh, if the physics, if the science and engineering was it, it, it was accepted to be as as important <laughs> to governments, I think progress in the PV and all the renewables would be uh, so much faster. The focus on science and engineering has to start from an early age. We need the next generation of scientists and engineers. And you spend about a third of the book talking about the history of semiconductors and semiconductor devices, almost making people to want to understand the beauty of this subject. Is this something that you actively tried while writing the book? Yes, thank you for, for, for picking that up. It's extremely important for, for a number of reasons to have some picture of why a solar cell works. I really don't think it's difficult. I use children's games to try and explain it, and I hope uh, people will all um, read it and try and uh, understand more. The reasons are, firstly, that the technology of the solar cell, which could, could change our lives, is very similar. In fact, it's very simpler than the technology that made your iPad, your mobile phone work. Now, you all know... That has revolutionised your life. You all know it is an industry that you respect and uh, you trust, and and it's the same industry and it's the same and it's the same physics. Secondly, I think it comes back to that point you you raised about um, about the position of the, of this sort of science. Um, 
The uh, is actually simple to understand, but it's quantum mechanics, and everybody usually turns off when think thinks uh, and that that must be difficult. And of course, the popular science books about quantum mechanics are actually dominated by my old friends from particle physics, uh, and they want to give you the impression, <laughs> that, of course, that there it's only their subject, but does these exciting things and has things like Schrodinger's cats, and what they don't tell you. <laughs> is that the, your, your laptop wouldn't work if there hadn't been some quantum behaviour of electrons within silicon. That's another reason, I think, for getting it over to readers to see. It isn't difficult, and it is as exciting <laughs> in, in its application as, as the particle physics and the cosmology and all, all the rest of it. And finally, it is more relevant to our everyday experience. It can solve our problems. Uh, if you understand how it works, I think it's terribly important that, um, that the schools that uh, are putting on the roof, that's fantastic. Uh, the, the schools of all places ought to be able to teach and understand how the thing works. So those are all the, the, the reasons why I felt important. So I hope it's not too much of a struggle. I hope you can get, get through those, uh, those chapters as well so you can understand better uh, about the solar revolution in which you hopefully will now tell them how you can become part. So the book does give quite profound and powerful calls to action. Maybe we can summarize them very briefly, but it, it seems to me that this is almost not a technical challenge anymore. It's about perception, and it's about action, it's about decision, uh, and about attitude. Unfortunately, low carbon at this point doesn't necessarily mean low cost, so there certainly has to be some amount of a willingness from people to do this because it's it's good for, for future generations, because it's good for society, not necessarily looking at at the bottom line, at cost. And it certainly seems like a global effort. We, we can't neglect parts of the world. Um, as you said, certainly there are markets where solar cells can be made quite cheaply, but they may not be particularly looking at, um, at the way they make them and if that has a particular impact. Uh, so what can we do now? We've read the book, we've listened to this podcast. What is there to do at this stage for, for me as, as a listener and as a reader? The first thing is to get whoever pays the bills in, in your household to switch to, to an all-renewable electricity supplier. The really exciting thing that has come out of this book is that discussing with um, Good Energies and with the, the people looking at biogas and the use of waste, particularly farm waste, for, for producing biomethane. You've may have heard the the archers uh, have been discussing this this recently so it, it's it's out in the public con consciousness it's letting the farm waste the animal waste and the crop wastes decay to accelerate their decay and and to capture all the methane which is the end product and feed that into the grid the other things that i suggest look as though they're more expensive i mean there are ways of, of reducing your dependence on gas for by by using heat pumps for example air source or ground source pv on the roof always looks expensive uh, and i think the great thing here is to get involved in your local community action groups there's l many of these have spring out around the country that try and produce their own uh, electricity uh, using pv and and, and, w and wind power and so on. One of the great things about these is the, that, uh, the, the sort of opposition, which sadly is growing towards, uh, towards wind and, and solar farms, tends to evaporate if, if there's local involvement and local people are going to see some, some benefit from, from these. Um, obviously, the, um, get involved in the national NGOs, uh, Green, Greenpeace and uh, Friends of the Earth. After that, yeah, things start to, start to get a bit, uh, a bit more expensive. It's true, but uh, there are so many options that you can go for now at home. 
um, for for renewables. I just just mentioned one one in the book. PV cost has come down. It may seem that you're not not saving that much because you only get electricity from your system when the sun's actually shining. Uh, but there's a little box now, very cheap, that will um, deflect your excess electricity you've generated with your PV system into the hot water tank. Uh, and we've saved on our use of gas at, at home uh, for eight to nine months of the year by that system. So an integrated approach to uh, using renewables in your home can bring more benefit, you think, in terms of the, of the price you have to, to pay. More details in the book about all the, these approaches and, and comparisons and, being, of course, in particular, giving you websites uh, where you can find out more and do comparisons for, your, for yourself So uh, for further information. And right on cue, the sun's come out. <laughs> Professor Keith Barnum, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Professor Barnum's argument for a solar revolution is firmly anchored in science. After reading the book, it seems that as consumers of electricity, our attitude should be more focused on what can be done and not on the shortcomings which are inherent to any solution. It turns out that there are or soon will be, efficient ways of producing a large proportion of our energy demand from clean sources, even in Britain. The book, The Burning Answer, by Professor Keith Barnum, is subtitled A User's Guide to the Solar Revolution. It's published by Orion Books in Britain, and it's available for purchase online and on the high street. I hope that it will serve as an inspiring call to action at this important time in our transition to truly sustainable energy. I'm Dr. Radu Spore, Royal Academy of Engineering Academic Research Fellow at the Advanced Technology Institute at the University of Surrey. Listen to more podcasts on current scientific research on podacademy.org. Tune in to my series of interview with young scientists by searching online for Potential Difference Podcast and find my science and engineering segment or WAMC Public Radio at academicminute.org. Music